This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I am Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With salvedictions, we introduce ourselves. And then with the careful gaze of the Grigori, we introduce Invisible Sun, the upcoming role-playing game from Monty Cook Games. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. In Salvedictions, we introduce ourselves and tell you about our gaming backgrounds. I am Scott Robinson. I have played RPGs from a young age, starting literally on the schoolyard of my elementary school. I played Dungeons and Dragons from some elementary school child's imagined combination of advanced D&D and the basic D&D rules, and really have played all versions of D&D since that time. Now, was that Advanced D&D 2nd Edition or before that? Oh, no. I, I That's Advanced Dungeons & Dragons with the uh, thieves stealing the crystal eye out of the statue in the player's handbook stored of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Perfect. Um, <laughs> in junior high, uh, I moved and found a new found a, a kind of a new set of friends and started playing more actively whereas before it had mostly been playing with family it was somewhat hazardous in a strongly religious community where dungeons and dragons was considered a form of satanic worship but somehow several of us who played uh, role playing games did find each other uh, actually through the dragonlance novels which we were allowed to read for some reason and we secretly played Dungeons and Dragons. We lost books when parents would steal them, uh, take them away, or in some cases burn them. Other times we decided the fight just wasn't worth it. And so we played games that were more uh, acceptable to our community and our families, uh, such as the Marvel uh, role-playing game with the face rip system. I am not going to mention face rip in my introduction, but I have played it and I love it. It's been so long I'm not sure how great the system was, but man, we had a lot of fun creating characters and playing through our games, which were just the worst manifestations of early 90s pockets and ammo belt sorts of superhero comic books. I guess I will say Face Rip might be the system that I learned that role playing was actually important and it wasn't just stats that made your character. We, we played a canned adventure, and I was the vision, and I was so awesome because I could just go up to the bank robbers and stick my hand and phase it through them and give them heart attacks. And my GM said, uh, hey, Dave, the, the vision doesn't actually kill bad guys, so you should probably stop doing that. I wish we had learned that lesson. But I, I think we were still pretty much in the power fantasy of a ju of junior high kids at that point, and we're most mostly setting things on fire and blowing them up. Well, that we did plenty of that too. <laughs> uh, in college, uh, I started playing more World of Darkness games. This was kind of Vampire the Masquerade in its heyday, and, and most of what we played were vampire. I always we played a little bit of Mage, though we had some trouble because we hadn't quite made that transition to understanding game rules as suggestions and to mm. take an active role in sculpting the rules for our game. 
I became particularly enamored of Wraith the Oblivion. Loved that game, though like many others, I worried at the time it was a game too good to actually be played. Now I understand how one would actually... (laughs) It it was a game that had such high requirements for role-playing. It put such demands on the players to role-play. In fact, playing two roles, both your character and you were the shadow, which is sort of like the negative influence whispering in the ear of another player in your game at the same time. So kind of like better angels? Something along those lines. But it it was beyond my abilities and imagination as a role player, though it created expectations about what role playing could be for when I really came back to role playing more actively and and started considering games more broadly. Where today I'm I'm looking more into games, uh, so so called story games and other games that push what I considered the boundaries of role playing games in my earlier experiences, where players have a lot more agency or a lot more control over the story, and thus the story that emerges from play is the product not just of a game master imposing a story on players, but instead the combination of the contributions of all of the players so when i when i talk about players i usually mean all of the people at the table all of the people in the room creating a story gm and player players with characters alike now when you talk about story games do you mean like dirty hippie indie games Uh, i mean some of those Uh, though i i do mean the term broadly to include both so-called small book games Games with very narrow focuses to tell a specific type of story with the players in, in, uh, that you might only play a few times, but you're, you're creating a sculpted experience. But also games that are more traditional, but that have a, a strong thematic or story element. So on the, uh, kind of in between, say, a traditional RPG like Dungeons & Dragons, uh, I would put Monty Cook Games' Cypher System somewhere in the middle where it has more player agency and more focus on games than mechanics. Though I'm also f- trying to follow story games and indie games that are further down that continuum where there's very few mechanics and instead more of a structure for cooperative storytelling that is barely beyond what one of my friends calls past-the-stick role-playing, where the only rule is you can talk when you have the stick. And I, and I want to be clear, I like... I like indie games. Uh, I don't. I don't think they're dirty hippie indie games. They're pretty cool. Um, I don't but, think people use "dirty hippie" as an insult, except uh, with tongue in cheek at this point in our culture. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe uh, what, what's one of those uh, story games that you you've enjoyed? If you had to um, recommend I, a story game to somebody, which one would it be, and why? Well, I've been following a lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse games. And I really want to play uh, Urban Shadows so that I can scratch the itch of the Vampire the Masquerade sort of story, but in this modern story game approach. We've done a couple of Powered by the Apocalypse games. I ran Dungeon World not very successfully, but we did have one night of worldwide wrestling. And oh man, it was amazing. That's where I am with my gaming life. I should I should add that as a day job, I'm a professor of political science at the University of Oklahoma. But that's who I am. Cool. Well, good to meet you, Scott. So as for me, I am Dave Hanlon. I've been gaming since sometime in the 80s when my mom brought home the Red Box for D&D with Larry Elmore's iconic art on it, uh, which I cannot forget even if I tried. 
That and the Star Frontiers cover. Holy cows. Those those were the two games that I think my little brother and I grew up on. Uh, so with uh, Redbox D&D, that's, that's how I got my start. And eventually I got into GMing with Shadow of a Run 2nd Edition. Uh, and that was in high school with a gaming group. We did a lot of weekend role-playing. We'd get together on a Friday night with a, several two-liters of Mountain Dew, a few garbage bags full of popcorn from the movie theater, and then we would just game. We'd just do Shadowrun or Advanced D&D 2nd Edition. That's, that's the D&D I got into after Redbox. Uh, and we would just do that all weekend. You know, we'd stay up until 4 in the morning, crash for a few hours, and then just start gaming again at noon. And I eventually took over the GMing responsibilities for that game, that gaming group, with Shadowrun. Because it got to a point where I was interested in exploring the magic in Shadowrun, whereas nobody else was super into learning those rules. So I ended up taking it upon myself to learn the rules for Shadowrun, and it eventually turned into me just taking over the, the GMing responsibilities as well. Shadowrun always interested me as a game. I thought the setting was really cool. I just had one bad experience where we spent two hours completing two rounds of combat the first time we played and never played again. But man, the setting is so interesting that I'd love to know more about it. Yeah, I I love the setting of Shadowrun. It is one of my favorites uh, of all time. It's fantastic. The The rules back in high school... I could deal with the rules back then. We we tried to do Shadowrun 4th Edition recently, and the rules just destroyed our group. We just didn't have time to grok the rules anymore. So we we ran a, a fairly long campaign of that, but then at the end, we all threw our hands up and said, we're never playing Shadowrun again. Like, we just can't do the rules anymore. Which is why, you know, Monty Cook games, Cypher System games have been so good for our group. Those are games that are easy to pick up and run and get into. And if you want to make your characters a little more crunchy, you certainly can. But if you don't care about the system, you don't you don't really need to get too into it. So after after my shadow running GMing job in high school, I didn't really get together a consistent gaming group until after college. I had a few groups in college, but nothing that lasted more than a few months here and there. So the gaming group that I put together, I want to say eight, ten years ago at this point, we've had a pretty solid core ever since then. It's it's morphed a little bit, uh, and we now have two gaming groups that run on alternating weeks. We have the group that I run, and I'm currently running Shadow the Demon Lord. And then we have the other group that my friend Troy runs, and we are currently doing uh, Star Wars Edge of the Empire in there. And we are... I guess I am gearing up to run Invisible Sun at the end of next year, which is one of the main motivating factors for me doing this podcast. I want to bone up on Invisible Sun, get familiar with the setting, and just understand how to turn a surreal setting into a game that makes sense for my players. And that, that's what I'm hoping, hoping to, to do with this podcast. Also, and my day job is I'm a programmer. <laughs> I was about to ask you what you did to support your gaming habit. Yeah, I, I write code. So I work from home. It works out pretty well. I don't have a commute. That's nice. So that's that's what I do.
In the careful gaze of the Grigori, we spotlight an element of Invisible Sun for detailed discussion. This time, we will provide an overview of the game. Invisible Sun is described as surreal fantasy, so it might be worth taking just a moment to talk about what that might mean. Uh, a simple version of surrealism is that surrealism describes things that are weird. Often people will use these terms almost interchangeably. Alternatively, people will talk about things being surreal if they are dreamlike. They'll, they're just close enough to life to seem like a dream, but also unreal enough to be dreamlike rather than actually real. That's a relatively simple version of surrealism. And it's that simple version that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. So weird makes sense. Like, it's weird. But, like, how do you make it surreal without just making it odd? And I like to, to uh, work off of a more complex definition of surrealism, but that also means more controversial because it may exclude things that other people think of as still being surrealism. I think of surrealism as only a particular type of weirdness. If weirdness is indicated by something that breaks rules, if something is weird because we can't explain it with the rules we understand as, as controlling our world, surrealism is a particular type of weirdness that serves to question the rules of our world. So it's not just weird for weird's sake or weird because it's just unexplainable and woo, isn't that mm. weird? But instead, surrealism is something that's weird in a way that draws into question something in our world that we take for granted, that we take as being objective or fixed. So in, I think of complex surrealism as being inherently subversive. An example of that might be how surrealism might subvert standards of gender. That is, uh, it might draw into question things that people assume are just inherent to genders. Like, what does it mean to be male or what does it mean to be female? What's inherent to these characteristics? Surrealism might break the rules of gender by having people act in ways contrary to their gender, dress in ways contrary to their gender, have physical bodies represented in ways that are contrary to other parts of their presented gender, but not just in order to go to say, ooh, that figure, that person is weird, but instead deliberately designed as a way to draw into question what we take for granted as being an objective meaning of gender, that there are rules of gender that aren't just social constructions that are just arbitrary to begin with. So it's an example of how weirdness can be used to draw attention to something we take for granted as a way to subvert or question that taken for granted quality. It often uses metaphor to motivate these sorts of questioning exercises. So um, one of the examples of the uh, subversion of the standards of gender, I think in the game, we have the guardian of the green sun. And I know I'm getting those terms uh, wrong at this point, uh, but we're not, we're not covering the, the wardens, but the warden of the green sun, I, I believe they described Warden as being ungendered or all genders. I forget exactly what it was, but is that an example of subverting those standards? I think so. Now, it, it's always dangerous to impute an, a motivation <laughs> for the creation of any particular part of, of a book, much less a role, something as complex as a role-playing game with multiple authors. Given what I've seen from previous statements in other games that they've produced, I think sub, uh, subverting and drawing into question standards of gender is one of the things they're going for. 
in a broader context mm-hmm. uh, to be more accommodating and more accepting of various definitions of gender is, I think, uh, a goal they have with their games generally, to be open for players of wherever they place themselves on a gender spectrum. But all of that is is built upon a questioning of often taken for granted qualities of gender. And that's just one example of surrealism. But also, it points out how why surrealist art is often very realistic, often photorealistic. The unrealism of whatever you're drawing into question is more powerful if it is next to or within a piece of art that is otherwise super realistic. So, uh, if, you know, famously in Salvador Dali's uh, work with the, the melting clocks, the mm-hmm. art itself is very detailed, uh, quite realistic, except that these clocks are melting in a way that clocks can't melt. Physical objects don't operate that way. But it's the detail and realism of the art that makes the melting of the clocks impactful. So similarly, surrealism is often the juxtaposition or the comparison of some elements of, a, of, a, of an image that are super realistic, but they're used to compare to something that can't possibly be real. And when it's at its subversive best, it's when that comparison draws into question that we take something we take for granted. Maybe it's the continuity of the body. So some of the art you see will have characters that are torsos with floating heads but no neck. And one of the things this draws into question is, well, what does it mean to be your body? What What's the relationship between the mind and the body if the mind is a floating head over a disconnected body? These are sorts of questions that these images raise that is made all the more important. All the, it affects us all the more if that head and that torso are rendered in a very realistic art style. It, but the form itself cannot be real. Sure. I'm not sure if we're going to get into this at this point, but one thing I've been thinking about is as a character living in this surrealistic landscape, it's not going to be odd to you though, right? We're not clear on that. (laughs) At least I'm not clear on that based on the information so far. We may have to wait and talk about this more, um, but some possibilities include, yes, it could be the characters. To the characters, this is all very normal. Mm-hmm. But to the players, it's weird. This is – or surreal. <laughs> um, much like in Numenera, to the characters, what's going on may just be the way the world works to them. But to the players, this is, isn't how the conservation of energy works. So something weird is going on to the players. However, it might also be with the setting material we do have that the player characters have recently returned to this surreal environment of the actuality after a period of time called the war mm-hmm. and they're being reintegrated into the actuality, that period of reintegration may be the opportunity for us to sort of experience the unfamiliarity with this, this, with the actuality and the surreal elements of the actuality along with our player characters. So I don't know yeah, exactly where we're, it, the game's going to eventually fall on that, but I can see it going different directions. And I'm sure different people's games are going to emphasize how unfamiliar the characters are with the surreal elements of the setting to, to different degrees. Yeah. And I think I do remember reading something about the, the characters are going to be coming back into the actuality from shadows. So I guess it might make sense for the surreal to actually strike them as very different. But we'll see more of that as the setting material comes out. But let's yes. talk a little bit about the actual physical product that is 
the Invisible Sun game. Right before we get into this, I think we should mention that uh, everything we are talking about is uh, conjecture. We don't we don't have all the details yet. I don't think we've mentioned that yet on this podcast, but we should definitely call it out. So everything we're saying here, we're just guessing at from time to time. Yeah, that is to say, we've read the material on Kickstarter. We've picked through the posts and tried to pick up what information is available, but we have no more access to information than all of the listeners to the podcast do. Uh, yep. We have no secret source of insider information. So if we say something, we may well be speculating based on what we have read, but it is just speculation. Of the secrets encoded in this podcast, uh, none of them are privileged information intended to to uh, sneak out more information about the game than is publicly available. <laughs> We just don't have it. Yeah. But we do know a bit about what's coming in the Kickstarter. So the the big thing that you're going to be getting if you kickstart this is the black cube. And it's a it's a 12-inch box, 12 inches on each dimension. Uh, and it's going to contain all of the components that you need for the game. There are additional things that you can add on, like player boxes, but... The main focus of this game is going to be the Black Cube itself. And in there, they're going to have all of the books, the key, the gate, the path, and the way. And they're also going to have all of the cards that are going to support gameplay. So with the cards, they're going to have spells and ephemera, which are, to my understanding, very much like ciphers in the cipher system. So your one-shot, one-time use items. You're also going to have cards for artifacts, and you're also going to have like a, a unique and important part of the game called the Sooth deck, which we'll get into in a little bit. In addition to all those cards, you're also going to get a cloth map, I believe, of the actuality, or perhaps of... Do you, do you remember what the, the cloth map was? I believe the cloth map was of Satyrene. Satyrene. Okay. And then the other map was of the actuality, but I'm not positive on that. Oh, that's right. We have uh, two cloth maps now because of the whole box upgrade stretch goal that they hit. So yeah, there there are two cloth maps. And there's also a board which maps out the path of the suns, which you know it, it figured in pretty heavily to uh, their lead up to the Kickstarter. And you can see that on pathofsuns.com, I believe. But we'll put that in the show notes. In addition to all the maps, also cloth maps are the greatest. I remember getting a cloth map with Ultima 4, and oh man, it was <laughs> that game was so great. Uh, I've actually been not, playing that recently. Oh, recently? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like an Apple IIe version of it? Uh, the, the like, there's not like a recent update, is there? Good old games? Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. Yep, so it's, just a, it's an emulated version of the original. Awesome. Oh, man. I, I remember uh, wasting afternoons trying to get down through the abyss. <laughs> so in addition to those cloth maps and the board, they've also got a sculpture that they're calling the Testament of Suns. And this, if, if you've seen anything about Invisible Sun, you've seen the box, and you've probably seen this sculpture. It's, it is a hand that has iconography adorning it uh, along its arm, and also the symbol of the invisible sun on its palm. And this sculpture is going to highlight effects in the game when you're at the table. So if you have something that's going to be sticking around for a while, this Testament of Suns is going to hold it and show it off so that all the players at the table can 
can see what it is and be reminded of, you know, whatever that effect is. And that that would be something that we might talk about with the Sooth deck. Yeah, one question I have with a lot of these components is how well they'll translate to online play. Uh, most mm. of my play has to be online because I just, with my travel schedule and other things, it's hard to get in-person meetings together. So I'm curious to see how these various maps and tokens all work with online play. Though I'm, I'm optimistic because uh, Money Cook Games has been pretty good about supporting uh, online play with Roll20 packets for the Strange and Numenera character sheets and other elements that, it, that have facilitated online play. And that seems to be a point of emphasis for them. Though they have said this game is intended to be played in person, I suspect they will make sure it is playable online. Well, they they do have the the app that they're going to provide with the game, which you know facilitates the Sooth deck. But then they also have an electronic version of the rules that you can look up. That that might not be quite accurate, but I want to say there was something that you would be able to use to to look stuff up. It's not quite PDFs, that- but there there is something. That, that is accurate to the current version of the Kickstarter. They do say that there is a rules compendium of some kind that is going to be electronic and searchable. Yeah. Unfortunately, you're going to lose out on, you know, being able to manipulate the, you know, the items at the table uh, when you're doing it online. But, you know, there, there have to be some concessions, I suppose. So the, the Black Cube also got upgraded. So it's coming with even more spell, well, more cards, more tokens, more handouts, more art. So it looks pretty neat. I'd like to take a moment to talk a little bit more about the Sooth deck, because this is a particularly interesting part of the game uh, and the box. The Sooth deck is a set of 60 cards that will have prominent images on them with borders around each of the deck, and you'll be placing these along the Path of Suns to structure the game as you play it. I'm interested because while there are mechanical elements in the cards, because the borders will indicate advantages and disadvantages to different types of characters, it might make some forms of magic easier or more difficult uh, at different parts in the adventure. It might make particular character types more powerful or less powerful in certain points in the adventure. But what interests me most is that the image itself is supposed to play a part in the story that you're telling in the, in the adventure of the game, that the images are, are to inspire themes that you might introduce into the game. And so it's more than just saying, Oh, well uh, now all spells with the fire keyword will do 1d6 more damage, or all all fighters now have a plus two to hit. Instead, there'll be cards like one they've announced called Imprisoning Ice that I believe you'll be able to introduce into your story by saying, okay, well, this, this image is going to indicate something is being imprisoned. So what is it in this encounter that's being imprisoned? And how is how can we introduce that into our story? Or maybe ice is the, the focus that I want to bring in based on drawing this particular card and how will cold or ice influence the, what is going on in a particular encounter or a particular uh, story as we're proceeding through the adventure. And, and this emphasis on imagery and theme to influence the stories as they evolve is, is really interesting to me. So interpreting these cards, you're looking at that as a collaborative effort between all of the players at the table, like the players and the GM? I do hope so. 
And I also want to bring up a podcast that I've been listening to, which uses this same sort of idea. So we'll put this in the show notes, The Unmarked. It's a podcast that's run by the folks over at gamerswithjobs.com. Rob Davio is the GM who is running this, and you might recognize his name from Pandemic Legacy. And he's running this game. He is using a tarot deck to determine how to handle the outcome of skill checks and challenges in the game. So they will flip over a tarot card, and sometimes the, the number on the card will help them decide what it's going to do. Or if it's a royal card, then that indicates something else for them. But most of the time, they will flip over a card, read what the interpretation of the tarot card is, and then use that to adjust the outcome or their actions, which I think sounds very much like what I am expecting this to be in Invisible Sun. I will have to check that out. Yes. Check the show notes. We'll put it in there. But now we can turn to another major innovation for the game, uh, different modes of play. Yeah, and uh, we're saying it's an innovation, and I think the innovative part here is that uh, Monica Games is trying to structure gameplay away from the table. So they've got three modes of play that they've identified. They've got narrative and action modes, and then they also have this thing called development mode. Uh, and narrative and action mode are, you know, I don't think we have to get into that into too much detail, but those are the typical modes that you're in when you're playing an RPG. They've just given them a label. So when you're sitting at the table and your players are interacting with your NPCs, I'm speaking as a GM here, or they're interacting with the, the, the environment or you're laying out the scene, that's, that's your narrative mode. Once you break down into initiative and turn order and combat, but that's your action mode. Combat, chase sequences the, are some of the things that they've called out specifically for action mode. Uh, so those are your typical, you know, at the table RPG modes. But they also want to give meaning and structure and encourage gaming away from the table. And this is what they're calling development mode, as in character development. So they want players to continue thinking about how their characters got to be the way they are. So they want to fill in backstory for characters and have flashbacks. They also want to provide an avenue for players who are unable to attend a session to still have something to contribute between sessions. If you have a player who just can't make it, maybe they have a little side story that you can work on with them between sessions. And that would be something you could sit down in person and do. Uh, or it's something that you can do, you know, over email or with the app. They say that that's going to facilitate communication, you know, to handle this sort of stuff. The development mode is the one that interests me most, though I tend to be a skeptic of claims that a game is going to change the way we game. I think this, in some ways, just facilitates things that people have been doing for a long time. So maybe it's innovation is overstated, but it seems to take this sort of activity more seriously than a lot of games do. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to see how the system will, will allow the game to kind of set players free to dive into their backgrounds and to work on their individual characters 
interacting directly with the GM, even if they can't meet that week with the group, or if the group doesn't meet for two weeks and they still want to talk about their particular character, they can invest more and be rewarded for it without those rewards making other players feel that they have to do this, the, the same sorts of activities or invest the same degree in the game. Yeah. Hopefully it'll help make characters deeper and maybe more developed without necessarily rendering all of the other characters irrelevant for future encounters, scenes, adventures, and the like. Yeah, and it's that, that character advancement piece that we don't have a whole lot of concrete information on. So it'll be interesting to see how developing your story arcs is actually going to impact that. But yeah, I, I am really interested in development mode because there have been times where one of my players will have uh, his kids in uh, the same activity that my kids are in. And the two of us will just like sit down and watch our kids do ice skating and we'll talk about how our games are going and what's happening in the games and what we're planning on doing. And if we had development mode like this, it, it would be another avenue of conversation where we could say, so how, how's your, how are you feeling about your character? Is there anything that you want to flesh out a little bit more at this point? And I'm also looking forward to having an excuse to get together with my players outside of game night. I could say, hey, it's a, it's a Saturday night. I'm going to swing by. Let's chill out for a little bit. And maybe we'll, you know, chat about Invisible Sun for a little bit and do some work on your characters. So there, there are a lot of things about development mode that I think are very intriguing. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be exciting to see how this and the other elements of the game come together uh, as we learn more over the next year before the release of the game in late 2017. Uh, but let's f finish up our overview by just talking about the emerging Invisible Sun community online. I can say from someone who, who participated in and kind of tracked the emergence of the communities surrounding Numenera and the Strange, that the communities around the games are really important. One of the things I appreciate for the, uh, the Cypher System games is that they have a, a robust, active, and friendly community that support these games so that people new can come in and ask questions and become inspired by the other members of the community. But it took some effort to build and sustain these communities. The new Monera community started only, you know, it kind of built up over the entire length of the playtest, but really kicked in with the release of the game. Similarly with the strange, the community really kicked in with the release of the game. Uh, there were experiments with different modes of locating that community, different places that the community could gather. But, but in both cases, there's been a real convergence towards uh, G plus and Facebook groups uh, as a way to communicate and share information about the game, uh, as well as Twitter for kind of short form communications. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems to be what's happening with uh, Invisible Sun initially. Yeah, there's a there's a big group over on G Plus right now that got put together initially to work together on the ARG that was part of the lead up to the Kickstarter and also part of the Kickstarter itself. And we should um, probably explain what an, can you explain what an ARG is? Sort of. It's an alternate reality game. So the the conceit is is that this game is the real world, but it isn't so there are clues in the real world on websites and they have also placed caches geocaches throughout the united states there are also there was also one over in the uk so they've put all these 
puzzles out in the world and on the internet and it's telling the fiction of invisible sun and going through this little story of the kickstarter this community was put together to work on these puzzles and there there were a whole bunch of puzzles that came along with the lead up to the kickstarter and the kickstarter itself so they have what some people believe to be an alphabet encoded into the the symbols of the suns and there are multiple geocaches that they've put, you know picked up and pulled information out of there's information on these drives that they found in the caches like images and text files and the drive names themselves have given them ideas for how to solve these puzzles in the initial kickstarter posts that they included on the kickstarter page they had clocks that revealed number sequences that would get you through a door on a web page if you knew how to input the numbers correctly. And that's actually been opened in different ways multiple times at this point. So this community was formed, I want to say, mostly to, to work on this puzzle together. And this is going to be the community, I think, that's going to you know, have to exist for the year up to the, the release of Invisible Sun. I suspect it'll be the community that also helps put groups together. There, it has served so far to help put groups together to bid, or not bid, I guess, to go to pool money uh, for what is admittedly an expensive game, but can, that where one game will actually serve the entire group. It may also be where people will find online games when those are available, and it might be where I look to find players to supplement online games, even if I participate in the, in the play test itself. So there should be a lot of reasons to pay attention to the community and specifically the G plus group in the next year. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that it, uh, you know, continues to, to grow for the next year. And I, I'm curious to see if Monty Cook games has plans to continue to foster that. I would be shocked if there were not at least some more puzzles that come out throughout the year, though, not with the same density that we've experienced during the Kickstarter. Yeah, well, there are still unsolved puzzles at this point. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music for today's podcast was Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Just check the show notes for a link. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their webpage in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com. And you can find me at DR Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. <laughs>